you're able to actually fund the health savings account more for people with lower income. And not a lot of employers know that if they want to think about giving bigger contributions to people's accounts, then they can do so. You can't do it the opposite. Obviously, you can't give people with higher incomes more money. So it's inspiring for me to see employers that are taking it very serious and putting money into people's accounts. You're listening to A Healthier Future, where we explore big ideas for transforming and improving the future of health, showcasing the most innovative solutions and best practices today. On this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Steve Nealman, founder and vice chairman of Health Equity, the country's largest health savings account administrator. Steve created Health Equity to give Americans more control over their personal health choices and healthcare finances, inspired by his own family's challenges during a crisis. In today's episode, Steve and I discuss his journey into healthcare leadership, how his family's global philanthropic work has influenced his view of the world, and how ethical capitalism can benefit everyone's best interests. I'm Mark Harrison, and together we're building a healthier future. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. Really been looking forward to our conversation and learning a lot more about you and about health equity and how you see this world that we're living in. I've been inspired by you over the years, and I think you have a lot to teach. Just as a quick disclaimer, I want to make sure that folks who are listening understand that Intermountain and Health Equity have a really robust partnership. We work together in the interest of lots of people, and this conversation is not about promoting that business relationship. It's really about how Steve sees a healthier future and how he's contributing to it. So with that disclaimer, Steve, welcome. Thank you, Mark. I have so much respect for you and Intermountain and all of your caregivers there. So thank you for including me in your podcast. You bet. Let's go ahead and get started. And in a couple of minutes, we're going to get to what health equity is and, and the origin story behind it. But I, I think it might be really useful for the folks who are listening to understand a little bit about who you are and where you came from. And you come from this really interesting family and you guys have a lot of international influences. You've lived all over, but your family's lived all over too. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about you, your family, and how you came up. Sure. Thank you, Mark. Born and raised in Salt Lake City. used to work as a young kid at my grandfather's stores. And my first job, I think I was eight years old. And I started being introduced to the fact that not every kid on the block would catch a bus every Saturday and go downtown Salt Lake City from where I lived in Sandy to work at a convenience store. That was unique. And all of my brothers and sisters did that. We worked every holiday. That was expected in a small family business. So I remember the lines out the door on Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, and we were there to take care of people when they needed us. And and that kind of began my first professional experience. My father also grew up in Salt Lake City, but when he was 19 years old, he put in his paperwork to serve a mission, didn't know where he would go. This was a church mission. Back then, they were about two and a half years long, and he was sent to Brazil to serve this mission. And he knew nothing about Brazil. He talks about looking it up in Encyclopedia Britannica. He said he had never been further east than Wyoming. Within a few months, though, he was on a train to New York and then a boat to Brazil. He lived there for two and a half years as a missionary, came home, married my mother, and then took her back. And pretty soon they had three kids in Brazil, one before they left and three others. And pretty soon came back to the States about eight, nine years later with all these kids that spoke Portuguese. And then I was born back in Salt Lake. So come from a family of seven. We tend to have a little bit of entrepreneurism in our blood. 
I've got a few lawyers and things like that. I'm actually the only doctor in my family, at least going back to my mother's great-grandfather. So my mother's grandfather, my great-grandfather. And so, yeah, I'm blessed to be both in a family of entrepreneurs and business people, but then also been able to uh, spend a lot of time in medicine. I played football at Utah State University. I was up in Logan. I loved it there. Did my medical school at the University of Utah and and then did my, my surgical residency down at the University of Arizona and then worked there for a couple of years on faculty and then came back to Utah. So just had a rich experience being in a family that, to your point, we've seen a lot of the world. And I've lived in Tucson and Salt Lake City and in Boston for a few years, but I do have a bunch of family members that have lived overseas. Steve, one of the things I admire about your church is this missionary work. And the religious part aside, which is, I'm sure, very meaningful to the missionaries, I love the idea that people get to go and volitionally immerse themselves in somebody else's culture, learn their language, learn their traditions, and be relevant to them. And I think living here in Utah like you do, being surrounded by people who've had those experiences is actually really good for our society. I think it makes people more tolerant. Talk a little bit about how your mom and dad's experiences before you were born, raising some kids in Brazil, has that affected the way your family looks at diversity in society? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things about these missionary experiences, and I was reading um, a recent book by Clayton Christensen. I, I know you know, you know Clayton, and he uh, passed away a couple of years ago. A wonderful business writer, and it's a book is called the Prosperity Paradox, and he talks about how to lift societies around the world through helping them become entrepreneurial and things like that. And he said, if you ever want to learn how people really live in these countries, most of which have less wealth than the United States, he says, go live with the missionaries, <laughs> the LDS missionaries for a day or two. And you'll see, because that's where they live. They live in the tough areas. They live in government housing. They live in areas like that. And I experienced that in, in Boston in some respects. And obviously, Boston's a lot different. But I can tell you, when my daughter served her mission, she was in the Brazilian favelas. And she took us back in there when we went to pick her up. And to see how those people live is incredibly humbling. My other daughter went to the States, but she was speaking Spanish in San Jose, California. And she spent time with people that even though they're kind of on the gold coast of the United States nowadays, these folks are the ones that are doing the tough jobs in this country. And then my third daughter went to Czech Slovak. And these people are, again, very little. And so I think the best experience that a young person can have early in their formative years is to get out and understand that most people in this world do not live like they do. Most people do not have the wealth. Most people do not have the access and they get a full lesson in what we would refer to now more academically as the social determinants of health. What are the things that lead people to not be able to live as healthy lives as they would like? And so I think they're great experiences. And, and look, and I know not every church has this opportunity or not every social structure, but people can all, all go work in the Peace Corps for a couple of years. They could go serve in the military for a couple of years. I think this is a great experience in, in every youth to try and take that type of advantage. I'm really glad you said that. Our daughter is an AmeriCorps volunteer right now, working in a clinic for Spanish-speaking people uh, with people who have no health insurance. And actually, my wife, Mary Carol, who you know, works with her on Wednesday afternoons. They get to work together. And it's been a really meaningful experience, both for them personally, as well as hopefully for the people they're serving. So how the heck did you end up being the first doctor in your family? 
and I say this as the son of a surgeon, you're incredibly well-adjusted for a surgeon as well. So how did you end up on this path? When I was a little kid, my mom used to always tell me that her grandfather, one of these really important mentors, was the doctor in the family. And he used to take her on house calls and he used to tell her, yeah, people just tend to get sick in the middle of the night. And it, it was so impactful for me. And she said, my mom tells me the story that we were going through a town when I was seven or eight years old and it was in Idaho and they had a sign over the road that said, we need a doctor. And I said, mom, I'm going to be a doctor. And she was so happy because she has such great memories of her grandfather. So that led to me to just stick with it. Obviously, playing football in college is not terribly conducive with pre-med, but I battled through it. And then I actually took a couple of years off and worked for my brother. He had an airline here in Utah that we ultimately sold to Southwest Airlines. But I just kind of kept going back to it. Of course, I took all my science classes and things like that in undergrad. And then I was lucky enough that when it was time to refocus on education that I was able to get into the University of Utah. And I love medicine. I love surgery too. There's something about surgery that, you know, you're able to lay your hands on somebody, figure out if you can help them. And sometimes the easiest answer is to say, we can't help you, but if you can, then you can make their life better. And it was very meaningful to me. And I was able to practice for about 12 years and I loved it. One of the things I really miss is practicing clinical medicine. So as a pediatric ICU doctor, what a pleasure it is to orchestrate a team of people just like in the operating room in service to another human being who has literally put their life in your hands and, and try and make that difference. And it is tough that you can't do everything, but I know you have a lot of respect for people who practice clinical medicine, as do I. So let me ask you a tough question. Like you, I, I know you read a lot and you listen a lot, and I really respect that. I love books and I love literature also. And there's a quote that I'm going to read you that's from Ernest Hemingway, and it's from A Farewell to Arms. He wrote it in 1929. And he says, the world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. So we all fail, and hopefully we grow from it. You've had such a varied career and an interesting and complex life path. Any opportunities that you've had to experience a setback and it's made you stronger or given you a different take on the world? Absolutely. That's a true principle, not just emotionally, but even physically. Scars are stronger than the tissue around it, right? <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons why people need to be walking and exercising every day is it's putting these little micro stresses and micro fractures on your bones and on your muscles and tendons and things like that. And when you lay down in bed at night and, and those little micro fractures heal, you're stronger. And it's the people that have been bedridden that get out of bed and fall and break their hip because they don't have that constant stress. And so I think it's both a physical principle and certainly an emotional principle. I could give you many examples, but I'm going to give you one example that coalesces my experience in medicine and business. So when I was in medical school, I had this crazy idea to build a resort with my brother's help and my wife's help down next to Zion National Park. And this was on a family piece of property. It's been in the family since 1962, kind of a legacy piece. Problem was I should have been studying, instead of, <laughs> and, but I was still trying to do this. And so I was coming to the end of my first year of med school and, you know, cruising along, done well in school. And I had three finals on one day, but I was also juggling this thing. We were going to open this resort that was this family project. And I had done pretty well on my three finals. And I thought, well, the one that I feel most comfortable with is neuroanatomy. I'm going to just wing it on the final. And the other two I did fine. I get my grade back on neuroanatomy and they said, you failed the final. 
And I was stunned, never failed a class like that. And I said, well, what's the makeup policy? And they said, you have to repeat the class. Ouch. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, there's two classes that they teach in the United States between the first and second year of medical school. One is in Des Moines, Iowa, I think. And the other one is in Burlington, Vermont. I chose Burlington because, of course, Ben and Jerry's, right? And Lake Champlain. But I had to leave my wife and my two-year-old. And she was down working at this resort we built, this family project, and I'm off in Burlington. (laughs) And I'll tell you, that was a giant wake-up call for me. It was like, you have to, it's okay to try and do a few other things, but you have to focus on the work in front of you. You cannot be distracted. And my wife was devastated. She was potty training our daughter and trying to get to work at this business we had started. The business is doing fine now. It's now we're in our 27th year or something like that. It's a great family business down there and we love it. But every time I think about the business and what I went through, it's a strengthening and also focused effort. So when Ernest Hemingway talks about that, yes, I was broken. I, I still remember yeah. my wife took me down to Las Vegas and put me on a shuttle and sent me off to Burlington. And I couldn't see her for two months. It was terrible. I will say you missed the potty training. So that may be a plus in its own way. You know, we all have failures and we hopefully get stronger and smarter from them. And mine are legion. One of my failings was I hated changing diapers. So this is a pediatrician telling you this, Steve. And my wife finally confronted me and she's like, look, I know when you're alone with Alex, that was our oldest. She said, I know you take good care of him, but every possible opportunity to avoid changing diapers, you take it. He said, so just be honest with me and say, okay, guilty as charged. And so in the end, she got a really nice Navajo turquoise and silver necklace. So she did the diapers. I bought the jewelry. And uh, we call that the poo-poo necklace is what it's gone down in Harrison family history as. We all do things that we probably shouldn't do and make some mistakes and you pay the price one way or the other. When I got into my residency, one of my first rotations was neurosurgery. And I'll tell you, I sure had a better base than I would have. That stuff was burned into my collective consciousness after spending two months in Burlington. Doing nothing but neuroanatomy. Neuroanatomy for two months. That and a little bit of wiffle ball on the beaches of Lake Champlain, but and eating Ben and Jerry's. It's, I think it's that's an example. You can rise from these challenges and be much stronger coming out of them. Let's talk for a second about health equity. And I'd love for you to explain to our listeners what it is, what do you do in language that they'll get. And then I'm really interested in words, as you know. I'd like to dive deep into the equity piece of that, because that's something that's important to both of us, this idea that regardless of who you are, you can have an equitable exposure to health and wellness and how you and your company contribute to it. And I know you think about this a lot. So tell us, if you're a superhero, tell us the origin story of health equity and then talk a little bit about your commitment to equity in general. I'll give you the shortest version I can. So when I was a pre-med student, I had my own health issue. We were on, at that point, my wife was pregnant. I was on a scholarship. I couldn't work. We had very little money. And I submitted my insurance bill for I had a stomachache and had to go see a gastroenterologist. And they denied the claim because they said that I had a pre-existing condition. Now, this was back before HIPAA, and they could do stuff like this. And by the way, it wasn't Intermountain's insurance company, just for the record. And they denied the claim, and they said that I had to pay the claim. And I didn't have any money to pay it. And it was only about $150, and the doctor discounted it, and it turned out okay. 
But going through that challenge of trying to talk to an insurance company and knowing I didn't have any money to pay the claim was an incredibly frightening experience for us. I think it took us about five months to pay the claim off just with our date night money. And so I kept thinking about it. And then later, my daughter, my our two-year-old, the one that we talked about earlier, she ended up having brain surgery when she, this was when she was only six months old. And so when she started having seizures and had brain surgery, I saw the bills coming in for this. Thankfully, those were paid. And I said, well, that's why you need insurance. You need insurance for the big stuff. But for the smaller stuff, it'd be great to have some sort of savings account that you can carry with you throughout your life. And so that was the idea, is just buying insurance and and working with good insurance companies for the big ticket items, making sure you have access to doctors and hospitals and pharmacies and things like that. But then having a side account that you can save and grow over time. And so started the company in 2002. I went back to Washington, D.C. and in 2003, right after we started the company and and helped educate some lawmakers on it. And then at the end of 03, the health savings account law was passed in Congress. It was part of the Medicare Modernization Act. And so beginning January 104, people could start having these health savings accounts. Prior to that, it was a thing called a medical savings account. We've been now at it for 18 years. It depends on who you look at in the league tables, but I think we're probably the largest health savings account provider in the country now. We're managing over 7 million families' health savings accounts, and collectively, it's almost $20 billion of money in those accounts. And again, this is that side account. You still have insurance for the big stuff, but the account helps you save for retirement, helps you save for your out-of-pocket expenses. Now, just a couple more things. I mean, that $20 billion is not our money. This is the most beautiful thing about it. It's not owned by the employer. It's not owned by the health plan. It is owned by those families, those 7 million families. And if they retire, if they lose their jobs, if they go into Medicare, they take that money with them and they can use it to help offset their expenses, both their healthcare expenses and even the regular expenses after they turn 65. It's been a beautiful thing. I think collectively there's over $100 billion in these accounts throughout the country and health equity, like I said, is around $20 billion of it. Now, one last thing is my mother getting into the equity concept. When I sent her my business plan, now this was right after I was finishing my surgical residency. So I'd been- Moms in- are super honest, Steve. I can't wait to hear what she had to tell you. She said, no, wait a second. You're going to potentially start a business after you've been through five years of surgical training and four years of medical school and four years of undergrad. Why would you do this? And I said, because I just think people need help. They need help navigating. They need help saving some money and we can help them. And she said, but she said, we've been with such and such a company for 20 years, insurance company. She said, are you telling me, because what you're telling me, we don't have any equity in that policy. You're telling me that there's no built up of an asset or equity. And I said, no. And I said, if you left that insurance company and went to a new one, they're not going to send you an equity check. That money's gone. The money you send to that insurance company every month or your employer takes out of your paycheck every month is gone. And then that made me start thinking, we should name this something. I was in the call room and I looked up on the browser, medical equity or equity and all this stuff. And then health equity was available. So I grabbed the domain name. Now that was 20 years ago, Mark, that was in 2002. And now we're 20 years later. And there has been a more broadened use of the term health equity in the last, I think, 10 to 15 years. But I will say that health equity was named by my mother, Rose Neeleman. She's now 88 in 2002. That's a really cool story. 
That's actually better than my mom's stories. I was about 38, 39 years old. I was a new department chairman at Cleveland Clinic and I loved my job and I decided I was going to get a, an MBA and in my spare time, which I didn't have any. And I managed over a couple of years to get it. My mom very wisely, when I was done with it, said, are you happy now? Are you like satisfied? Are you there? I was like, I've never been <laughs> happy <laughs> and, and done and satisfied. No, I'm not. And after that, my wife started calling me Dr. What's Next. That was her, that's one, one of her many nicknames for me. I, your mom had a very analytical approach. My mom had a very emotional approach and both are probably very prescient and, and right. So let's talk about the other use of the term health equity. I have the privilege of, of knowing you personally and we've gone on some hikes and some bike rides and I consider you to be a personal friend. And I know how much you care about the people in the community around you. And that's broad, that community, that's 7 million families that you're helping. Talk about your personal commitment to people who look different and sound different or from different backgrounds, rural versus urban, black versus white, gay versus straight. Talk about your commitment to health equity, because I know it's very real. I'm blessed to work with a company named Health Equity that really takes this serious. I was just reading our ESG report where yesterday, where we talk about the environment, our social and governance of, of the company, and, and there's a lot in there around diversity. Look, we can always be better, and we are committed to being better as a company, but I can tell you that we do have quite a bit of diversity, a lot of women in leadership. We're working on pay equity. We're working on even diversity. I think 22%, I was reading yesterday, of our managers at Health Equity are people of color. We can always be better. We have a very supportive team when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues and things like that. So one of the blessings of Health Equity is that even though we live, we're headquartered in Utah, and I think we have about 900 teammates in Utah, we have about another 2,500 teammates throughout the country in places that have much more diversity than Utah does. If you just took our Utah population, it wouldn't be as diverse as what I just told you. But I think if you take it on the whole, we're probably one of the more diverse companies headquartered in Utah because we do have people in the Bay Area and really almost in every state. But we have populations in Phoenix and in Georgia and and then also in Irving, Texas and Milwaukee and a big population up in the north northwest of Minnesota. So we do have, I think, pretty good diversity. Now, when I think of health equity, and I think about more of the kind of academic, something you'd read about in Wikipedia, you talk about, is there fairness out there? And you think about this, the unfair balance of power and wealth and prestige and things like that, especially when it's related to people's health conditions. Your company, Mark, has done great work on this and pointed out that if you take neighborhoods in this valley, in the Salt Lake Valley, that you could have one neighborhood where the average lifespan is 10 years less than a neighborhood in the same valley. And why is that? And I share your belief that most of it's related to these social determinants of health. Are people able to have good food? Are people able to have access to care? Are people able to understand the importance of preventive care and things like that? And so where I think this kind of circles back to the company is that we work with about 120,000 employers throughout the country. And we get to really see what they're doing. We get to see what other health plans are doing. And what's so inspiring to me is that when employers say, look, we understand that it's our job as an employer to help people get the health care they need immediately, but also start thinking about how can they avoid illness. And so they start instituting programs and things like that. And then they can reward folks 
or engaging in those programs, you're able to actually fund the health savings account, Mark, more for people with lower income. And, and not a lot of employers know that if they want to think about giving bigger contributions to people's accounts and things like that, then they can do so. You can't do it the opposite. Obviously, you can't give people with higher incomes more money, but you can give people with lower incomes more money in the accounts. And so it's inspiring for me to see employers that are taking it very serious and putting their money where their mouth is and putting money into people's accounts. We have people in our population that the first bank account, like bank account that they've ever had, the first visa card where they can take money out of an account was when they received their health equity visa card, which is pretty remarkable. And so we're continuing to do that. Steve, one of the harsh realities in the United States, and I don't think this is right, but it is a fact, is that the biggest social determinant of health is what you have in the bank. And you've heard me say this before, but rich people are always going to do okay. They're always going to be able to get health care. And that's not true for other folks. And I see what you've done with HSAs as providing sort of little d democracy for people in terms of being able to begin to take agency over their own um, health future. And I appreciate that. And I think it's actually noble work. I know you're going to keep pushing it really hard. So let me change topics just a little bit. You briefly mentioned that you played college football. That's not a trivial thing. And, and you played well. And um, you've got other athletes in your family. And we're both training for Kona in the fall, the Hawaii Ironman. Talk a little bit about who you are as a leader, who you are as a human, and a little bit about how that connects to your sporting mindset and life. And just be curious to hear how this fits into your psyche and your sense of purpose. I started as a team sport player, right? I, and that's why at Health Equity, we call our folks, you call your people caregivers, we call our people teammates. We do think we're on the same team and we're, we're pulling for one common goal. And that's really important. I love my time playing football. My nephew plays in the NFL for the Jets. Tough team. These folks love each other. Go ahead, say his name. He's a great guy. Yep. Zach Wilson. He's a great guy. And, uh, and he's on a tough team right now, but but he's only going to rise if his he learned team some gets... lessons this year himself. Yeah, he, yeah, he was sacked 19 times, and so that was a lot of lessons. So I started my my kind of my sports career in, in team sports, but I, thankfully I, I kind of got out of football without too many injuries, a, a little neck injury and stuff like that. I was able to get through. But then a few years ago, I realized that that the best way for me to try and use my time and stay healthy was if I could do stuff when it was dark outside. Because then I could still be with my family and my wife and kids when it was light, because they would usually be up then. And so I started, I had a couple of people that said, hey, why don't you go do one of these sprint triathlons? Or why don't you do one of the Olympic distance ones? And I'd done a few. And then I built up to doing the half Ironman in Kona in June of 2019. And I had a great experience over there. And I was feeling like finished the race. And I thought, well, someday maybe I would try a full and then I saw this inspiring message a few months later, Mark, I think it was in the fall of 19, if I recall, that you sent out to your team about the challenges you were facing with multiple myeloma and, and the health challenges you were coming up on. And I think at the end of your message, you said that once you got through your therapy and you got it into remission, you were, you were going to take on this challenge to do the Kona full. Now, I had never, I just never considered doing the Kona full, but I guess I had fooled myself into thinking, well, I did the half and I didn't die, so I could probably do the full. 
And so I sent you an email, you may remember, and I just said, Mark, if you need a wingman and you get through all this treatment, give me a holler. And then you were nice and responded. But I didn't hear from you for about, I think, over a year. And then you sent me a message last spring and said, okay, let's go do this. And so that's what led to this. And of course, we're raising money for a great cause, for Primary Promise. Yeah, that year wasn't the most fun year. <laughs> Health-wise, and we had a little pandemic. At one point, we had trying to get myself into some form of remission. It wasn't going very well. The pandemic was raging, and we had an earthquake here. <laughs> here. <laughs> a big one, too. So I was like, I was just waiting for like frogs to fall out of the sky or something at that point. But we've gotten our way through, and I'm in good health. And yeah, we're going to go do Hawaii Ironman together. It's going to be awesome. Do you want to tell folks a little bit about Primary Promise? Yeah. So look, my daughter, Lauren, um, I'm going to go back to Lauren again. Third time I'll mention her. I'll make sure she listens to your podcast now. But uh, when she had brain surgery, when she was six months old, it was at Primary Children's Hospital up in Salt Lake City. And I'd like to think that when they went in and dealt with that, that she, they saved her life. And, uh, and I've had other children that have been up there when I was a medical student, I spent time at primary children's. And so it's my, my brother, David, who's an airline guy, his daughter, Erica went through open heart surgery when she was just a few days old there. And so we've always had tremendous respect for what they, they've done at primary children's of course, as a young kid, it, we used to put pennies in the, in a bucket in church to help pay for the hospital and stuff. And part of this campaign is not just to go off and do an Ironman, which I think is it's a tough thing to do. And we're working on it to, doing everything I can to finish the one in Kona. But it's also, I talked to my wife, Christine, we've decided to match donations that other companies or people want to put into the campaign so that we can raise some money for the primary promise. And, and the primary promise includes a lot of stuff that you know a lot more than I do, Mark. But I know that one of the things is a new primary children's hospital that's a little bit closer down to where we live here, uh, we live in Alpine and, and it's in Lehigh. And I think few people know that one of the reasons why Primary Children's is so busy is that it's not just taking care of people in Utah, it's taking people from all, uh, children from all over the West. And so with the population, burgeoning population here in Utah County, we need another hospital so that we'll have a place for our kids to go to, honestly. And so I'm thrilled to be able to do that. My wife and I are a thrill to be able to put a match up for this fundraising and we're going to really keep hitting it hard and our goal is to raise you know a couple million dollars for the hospital steve you and christine have been incredibly generous and i think that together we're going to raise a lot of money for the children's hospital and beyond and for our listeners the goal of primary promise is actually to create a model children's health care system for the western united states and yes we're building another children's hospital it's very important but we're blowing out behavioral health services, telehealth, transition from pediatric to adult disease management for people with chronic diseases. And we're going to do it across the eight-state Intermountain region. Nothing like this has ever been done before. It's a privilege to embark on the Kona campaign, what we call the road to Kona with you. And who knows what will happen over there? I always say that the second half of an Ironman is like the dark side of the moon. You're out of radio contact and anything can and will happen. And it'll be exciting, and I'm sure it'll be testing at times, but all for a good cause and with a great friend and a great person. So, Steve, as we wrap this up, you've had a, a varied life, a successful life. You've had your moments that have tested you and helped you be stronger. Any words of wisdom for 
aspiring entrepreneurs out there, people who want to make good trouble and, and do good things for other people as we wrap up? I think you hit the nail on the head. The beauty of, of entrepreneurism, if properly done, we can all think of the bad examples. But let's talk about the good examples. Is If you can do good for people and do well financially for your teammates, the people that are working and pouring their hearts into it, to your investors that have sometimes mortgaged their homes and put things at risk or at least taken money that might have gone to their kids' college funds, whatever. I think investors get a bad rap, but a lot of these early stage investors, friends and family are, are given everything they can. That combination of doing good and doing well is magic. And that's the opportunity here. That's why different people start businesses. And we have a common friend. In fact, there was a news thing on Don and Heather last night on one of the television stations. I don't know if you saw it, but one of the things as I've been in my training, as I go through life and I'm thinking about how do I get through this hard time? I think of people that have been through a lot harder time than me. And this woman, Heather Van Borum, she lost both her legs in a just a terribly tragic accident right before Christmas. Don, her husband works at Intermountain Medical Center, dear friend of mine. And so anytime I start thinking I'm going to whine about the fact that, oh, business is tough and I'm working with a customer because there's a challenge and how can I work through these challenges or uh, whatever it is in business, or I'm in the pool and I can't believe I have to go swim eight 400s like our coach told me to do this morning. I just think there's people that have a lot more challenges than I do in this world. And whether it's a good friend like Heather or Mark, what you've been through, or people that are getting up every morning and working two jobs to support their kids, or people that don't have jobs, or our friends over in the Ukraine, or you name it, there's a lot of people that are suffering right now in this world. And so I think that's what's been a real driving force in my life is just to think about the fact that I'm so blessed. And every day that we have to be alive is a blessing. Yeah, it's a privilege to live intentionally. And you're right, Don is one of our trauma surgeons and was involved in saving his own wife's life, which is quite extraordinary. And we wish them the best. But it is a privilege to live intentionally. You're doing it. And thank you for your contribution to society. Seven million families you're providing with optionality. And that's a huge thing. And in the name of good. So Steve, thank you for helping by being on this podcast with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Well, I'll see you on the trail. I'm Mark Harrison, CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. Thanks for joining us today as we work together to build a healthier future. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, then rate and leave a review. Your feedback will help us bring you better episodes each week. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.